Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Catherine. And I am Gail. And we are delighted to welcome you to today's episode of Women Over 70, featuring women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are leading lives that illustrate inspiring ways to learn, contribute, and make a difference as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. And today we're thrilled to be talking with Pamela Tate, She's age 73. She resides in Oak Park, Illinois. Uh, Pam has uh, quite a legacy of being a leader in adult learning and workforce development, locally, nationally, and internationally. And we'll hear a bit about that. What we also wanted to talk with Pam about is her experience as she is transitioning from full-time overload work into new arenas of making contributions, and a bit about some health challenges and how that's been affecting her, her life, and then current involvements and, and some new, a new passion uh, where she will continue to make a major difference. So welcome, Pam. We're delighted to thank have you. you, and thank you for being with us. For sure. So why don't we just start with the easy question, uh, questions about, just to get, tell us a bit about your work with uh, Kale, the Council for Adult and Experiential Learning, and uh, what about that work has been so important to you? Well, for 28 years, I've been the president and CEO, and it has always been my passion to help frontline workers, people that would not normally have an opportunity to go on for post-secondary education and training. I've always felt that education was the ticket to a better life. It certainly was for me. And I have wanted to help as many people as possible in as many ways as possible to have education and careers that matter. And so during my years at Kale, I expanded its reach beyond higher education where adults already were to to workforce development programs where adults were not yet in school and we made important programmatic choices that would help adults make their way into higher education and get access they wouldn't ordinarily have. Could you give us an example? I, I'm, I'm kind of remembering, was it UAW Ford or a Levi? Yeah, there, well, the UAW Ford project was the first one, and I'll be brief. It was in the 80s, and we were able to help probably, oh, thousands of auto workers to return for post-secondary education and training through an agreement that they had reached with the companies and with, with Ford Motor Company. And we um, helped them with career advising and helping to make the colleges more uh, responsive to them. Uh, but the, the Levi Project is probably one that stands out. That's probably why you remember it, because it was 
it was an, an amazing 18,000 person project to help all these laid off Levi workers to get, in many cases, literate. 35% of them were illiterate. And we had to help them with literacy, education, uh, jobs, starting new businesses. All of this was money provided by the company, but we did all the work to help place them and give them a, a better chance in life because mm -hmm. they were losing a job that they'd had for a lifetime. For a lifetime, yeah, and they wanted, they needed to stay in their community. Mm -hmm. So I know that you have, over the course of your career, raised millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> That's true. Right? I mean, what, what, what are we talking? Do you know? Even know? I don't know. Okay, well, but it's tens of millions. Tens of millions. To support the kind of innovative programs and projects to bring to bring higher education and workforce development together in, in the way that you were you were talking and you have um what are some of the as you were the last few years with kale what were some of the major kind of new um movements or, or projects that you were where, where are things now in terms of workforce development and higher ed one of the things that we were trying to do in the in the last years i was there is to get colleges and universities to look at themselves in all of the things that they were doing to serve adults, everything from A to Z, and get them to rethink how they were operating. So we developed the Adult Learner 360 tool to help institutions examine themselves against some benchmarks and then from there come up with a game plan a plan of action for change so on the college side that was a major thing that we worked on then on the on the corporate end we developed a, a pathways or a path sorry path savvy uh, which is a career development tool to accompany our advising so we had a, a an actual technology tool and career advisors to help people map their careers. And we developed this kind of technology, not only for companies, but for entire states. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in Tennessee, we used a Gates Foundation grant to build a technology called Work, Learn, Earn that showed industries throughout the state uh, in nine regions so that workers or students could look at what the jobs were that might be open and then figure out what skills and competencies they would need and then map a path to to engage in education to reach those goals so we really we spent a lot of time on technology tools to help enable adult learners as well as a public policy change we we worked a lot on various initiatives to change public policy so those were, I mean, those are some of the yeah, things that stand out for me. Yeah, Can right. you tell us, uh, Pamela, a little bit about the fundraising aspect of the work that you did? It's something that's so elusive for so many organizations. I think yeah, I, I've always wondered why it's so elusive because because it um, foundations uh, are very interested in results and great ideas, and they tend to invest in people that they have confidence in, you know, leaders that they have confidence in. And so Kale had a real track record of doing great work. 
we delivered on everything that we were promising to do. You know, when we would get a major grant, we would deliver on the grant, and then we could show that we had done the work. And so I always was able to convince foundation leaders that they could have confidence in us, that they could trust us. Mm -hmm. And not only for grants, but we also did a lot of our experimentation with what's called program-related investments. And these are, these are low interest or no interest loans that foundations give you that you have to pay back with the proceeds of your work but you get a long time to do it. So you, it's, it's like good, you know, low interest money that you pay back and then it's circulated to other nonprofits. So we took a lot of risks to taking out loans. Uh, we, we were loaned millions of dollars and we paid it all back. Wow. And so people over time, you build a, a track record and a reputation and then it becomes easier and easier. Uh, but fundraising just takes an enormous amount of determination and follow-through and persistence. And vision. And vision. And vision yeah, sure. and vision. And you have to develop relationships mm -hmm. with foundation officers mm -hmm. to, to, so they really know you and not just you in the position, but you, the person. And I had a lot of I still have a lot of really great relationships with foundation leaders. I can imagine. All right, so Kale was a 501c3. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Yes, we could spend our entire 30 minutes talking about uh, Pam and Kale's uh, accomplishments and all the recognition that you and Kale have received. But, and, we would like to hear some about your experience as you moved from full-time, total engagement, leading this major organization, to, to what? Well, it's interesting. I always wondered, well, how, what would I do if I weren't doing this? Mm -hmm. And I spent so many 70 or 80 hour work weeks over so many years that I just couldn't imagine any other life. And so when Kale was acquired by another nonprofit called Strata Education in January of 2018, that, that enabled me to move in July of 18 into a role with Strata and to leave my full-time position with Kale. And so I didn't go from Kale to, quote, retirement. I went from Kale to being the chief national partnership officer for Strata, where I was asked to help other nonprofits in their family of organizations to raise money for their own initiatives. And it's a whole different thing to be in an organization that itself is well-funded, does not have to fundraise, but where you are helping the CEOs of other nonprofits to raise money, and it isn't your own organization. It's much easier, obviously. <laughs> it's much less stress. <laughs> and so for eight months, uh, I did that. I, I helped a number of other, uh, several of the other nonprofits in Strata. And I enjoyed the chance to work with local and community foundations with these other organizations, which wasn't so much what Kale had done. We had worked more with national funders. 
And so I had eight months of what I would call kind of a, it felt like a transition job to me. (laughs) And I think that by the time I left Strata at the end of April, this year, April of 19, I think I was more ready to do consulting work and other and have other interests outside of my job because I was no longer responsible for everything and, you know and everyone in in my organization it was strata was a very large and well endowed nonprofit that that d- there was nothing really that you had to do to keep it afloat and so I I was very surprised, let's put it that way, I was very surprised when I actually found that I enjoyed having this time to explore new things and to do a little bit of consulting with some nonprofits on my own, but not do full-time work. Uh, It was a shock to me that, that that I didn't feel anxious or depressed, which I was afraid I would, but I didn't. And this just happens to be a period where I am healthy. Because because speaking, you know, going back to your your question about my health concerns, I was diagnosed in 2011 with ovarian cancer, and it was a stage four uh, situation. And so the prognosis was not good. But after chemotherapy and surgery, I ended up being in remission for a much longer time than anybody would have thought. So then it returned, but then it returned in, in June of 2016. So I went through another surgery and more chemotherapy, but it hasn't returned since. So I'm in this nice little window here where my cancer is at bay at the moment and I'm healthy and I am able to explore things. And I've always had a real concern about the environment. I've always been concerned about animals, animal welfare, welfare of the planet. And so I made a decision to go to this training in August, in early August, which I had wanted to go to before, but never could. I never had the time. Uh, I couldn't take the time away from my job. But I this time I went to training, and it, it's a training by Al Gore and his Climate Reality Project. And so I, I decided this is my chance. It's in Minneapolis, and I will go. And so I applied, and all you have to do is get there. And then once you're there, they pay for – it's like a scholarship. You know, you get trained for three days, and it's grueling, actually. It's like long days. But you – end up as a, as a climate action leader and then you can go out and make presentations and so on and it was so energizing and inspiring to be there to be there with 1100 other people with many others turned away because there wasn't room but 1100 people all of whom are as concerned about the climate crisis as you are, and, they from other, and they're all, around the world. all over the world, people from mm-hmm. everywhere, mm-hmm. and people of all ages, from 13 to 80, wow. uh, who were there to be volunteers, to m- make 
uh, these kinds of presentations and media appearances and write op-eds and write articles, you know, I mean, the, the, everybody was there to kind of get the basic information and then come up with a plan of action. And you have to commit to 10 events in the year following the training. They call them acts of leadership. You have to agree to do that. And so I've done two <laughs> and I'm, I'm working on a bunch of others for the year. I know about one. Uh, for the your, the neighbor, neighbors, neighbors. Yeah, I started out with a practice presentation. Right. And what yeah. was the second one? I participated in the global climate strike on September 20th in Chicago, oh. uh, when when all these young people organized world the world over uh, climate strikes, and so we had a wonderful turnout in Chicago, and people marched from Roosevelt and Columbus all the way up to Federal Plaza and had a lot of media coverage and it you know I really felt that I was a part of a larger movement I really liked that you know and I'm I'm arranging for some other presentations that are local and trying to meet with my state senator about legislation in Springfield the clean energy jobs act to see if we can get that passed uh, and make sure that they don't pass it with amendments that allow nuclear energy to be considered clean but really wind and solar are the two that we're trying to make sure are the main ones. So I feel like, surprisingly, you know, I mean, after a few months, it's just been May to now, that I really like my life. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think I would. Did you leave Strata, was that of your own? choice to stay for eight months yeah I decided to, I decided to leave because it wasn't challenging enough for me <laughs> it really after the work that you it really doing. wasn't sure. yeah I mean they're they're a great organization you know I just felt that I needed to be much more in the center of things mm -hmm. and not in a more in a more uh, advisory role which is what I w was in. It must be a major shift to go from being the leader, the one who's responsible for the everything from the vision to the technology to are the students and the workers being served and right. to finding ways to, in, to influence, uh, to be a leader, but be a leader in a different way. Are you still in that process? Yeah, I, I'm still I'm still working on that. Like one of the things I remember saying to a friend of mine was, you know, the one of the differences is that when I say that I want to do something, I can't make anybody else. I can't I can't require anyone else to be on my timeline. When you're more of a volunteer leader you're on the timeline of other people. And that's much harder. You know, for example, I've been working for weeks to get a meeting with our state senator. And, you know, eventually I will get this meeting. But it's not like when I used to be the CEO of Kale and I said I wanted a meeting, I was able to <laughs> make it happen. So I have to, things take a whole lot more uh, follow through and stick to itiveness when you're a volunteer leader. You are the person for that, though. <laughs> I can attest to that. But and that other difference too is that when you were head of Kale, 
you went to Washington many times a month and to talk with policy makers. And you didn't have to go through your state senator. Right. You right to the policy right. makers in Washington. And now it sounds like that's not going to happen, that you've got to, at least for now, go through uh, other channels. Well, I mean, one true? of the reasons that I am not in Washington these days is because this administration is absolutely nowhere when it comes to doing something about the climate reality that we're all facing. Today, for example, the president didn't even go to the, to the UN climate summit and he was at the UN, but he didn't even attend. He dropped in for 10 or 15 minutes. He, he is just, there's, there's essentially no leadership at the federal level. And with the Senate in control the way it is, there's no way to get anything through. So climate action is going to be a state-by-state state issue for the foreseeable future. So the place to be working, we've all determined, is in our states. And we have a good situation here in Illinois, and I want to make the most of it while we have a democratically yeah. controlled mm -hmm. legislature and governor. Yeah. And they, are, they care about this issue. So I want I want to make hay while we can, you know, and so I feel like yeah, there's going to be a, a lobbying day in Springfield, October 29th, and I'm 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 planning to be. I hope I'm um I hope I'm feeling well enough and that everything goes well. I'm having my next checkup a week before that, so you know you always Those have to always, always a concerning right? right? But if all is well, then I do plan to be there, and I am very. Uh, I'm very committed to the policy changes that are going to be necessary if we're going to make a difference in this area because individual action is critical and I'm trying to, to model that, but without policy change, it's just not going to change, not fast enough. So I feel, you know, I really care about the education and workforce issues, but I think that it's time to focus on this. Mm -hmm. That's what, has become clear to me. This is, the, this is um, you know, David Brooks says that book, The Second Mountain. Mm -hmm. And I think this is my second mountain. <laughs> you know, I kind of do. I didn't know that this is where I would end up, but this is what I think it is. So um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, start, you know, I'm kind of like just starting into this. I'm not knee deep in this transition yet. Yeah. So I'm, oh, I have a lot of questions. I'm wondering about uh, how are you, I know you're, you're sort of knee deep, ankle deep, knee deep into the transition. How, what are you telling yourself? How are you helping yourself with pacing? With, uh, sounds like you don't want to get back into 70, 80 hour weeks. No. Which one could. So how, how are you managing, navigating that? <laughs> I, I wish I could say that it's all very intentional and <laughs> and <laughs> planned out, you know, but it, but it isn't. Um, I'm I mean I'm on two boards, and each of them has four meetings a year. So, and and then I'm doing a lot for the Excelsior College Board because I'm vice chair. What are those boards you're on? Excelsior College is one, and the other is the Guide Dog Foundation in America's Vet Dogs. It's a board that 
that oversees the organizations that handle service dogs who help the blind and people with PTSD. I've always been really interested in service dogs and dogs, period. <laughs> and I have two golden doodles. You do. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm very interested in how service dogs are trained and matched and how they serve people and they make such a difference for people. So I'm on that board. I'm new to that board. Is that a national board? It's a national board, yeah. And it oversees these two nonprofits, Guide Dog Foundation and America's Vet okay. Dogs. Okay. Common board. So I, how do I think about this? I, I try not to be traveling so much. That's one thing. I'm trying, but you know, right now, September and October, it's not working out. <laughs> I'm be because a lot of these board meetings and everything, you know, how everything happens in September sure. and October. So it's all happening now. But by November and December, I, I'm hoping I'm not traveling as much. But the what I'm trying to regulate is the consulting. Mm -hmm. That's that's the piece that could grow, and I really have to. I have to try to say to myself, just because someone wants you does not mean that you have to say yes. Mm -hmm. This is a big challenge for you. Because my whole yeah. life I have felt that anything that somebody needed meant I had to say, yes, I will do this. And so to, to not do that is really a challenge. And it takes hard work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not always successful. Uh, so I might end up being too overcommitted. I, 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 that could happen. I'm trying not to have it happen. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> we need to talk. <laughs> I, w I wish I wish I had better. You know, I wish I could talk about this in a more mature way and say I figured it all out. You know, I, but I haven't. I'd like to meet the person who has that all figured out. <laughs> but I haven't figured it all out. <laughs> do I have time for another question? You do. Okay. I want to go back to, to uh, health because you mentioned that you've been through bouts of chemotherapy and surgeries and, you know, conventional medicine, and you've, you've done that. And I also know that you've been a very loyal uh, client of uh, a Chinese healer. Yes. And I'd love to have you say talk about that. Yeah, I've, I decided that since he was able to help my husband who had cancer, mm -hmm. that I thought that if I would see him regularly, I see him three times a week, mm -hmm. and he is incredible. And I, you know, I, I ha listen to him. I do the things that he suggests. And he it not only does um, acupuncture, but he does energy healing. And he's helped me enormously to heal more quickly from things. That's one of the things. That, and he works on my immune system three times a week. Mm -hmm. So that hopefully, so that but the combination of Eastern and Western medicine maybe will mm -hmm. together keep this at bay a longer time. Mm -hmm. well, and it has. And it has yeah. so far. Although, you know, when it came back in 2016, I... I was really distressed because I thought, oh, you know, this isn't working. But then, I, you know, I know that the normal time is two years mm -hmm. for, for most women who were at my stage of ovarian yeah. cancer. And I ended up, I'm, it's now eight years already mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. 
which is not bad. Not bad. Considering no, that no. there's an 80% recurrence rate. Yeah. So I, I, I rely on, on him, and I figure it can't hurt. Mm-hmm. It can't hurt. And, and it's, it's, I've seen him heal small things, and so I have faith in him. So I just use both. Mm-hmm. And he, doesn't, he does not argue for only using yeah. Eastern medicine. Mm-hmm. He, he has studied Western medicine as well. So I feel like I need an oncologist, and I need him, mm-hmm. you know, yes. and the two together are kind of helping me manage. The, the one thing that I have not done, which I think I should do, is do work on diet as it relates to uh, health, mm-hmm. because everybody talks about how your diet has so much to do with right. it. Right. I and, know you exercise. Oh, yeah, exercise. yeah. I'm a, I, I definitely do that, but I just think I should be different about more disciplined about what I eat you know but that that's another that's another thing that I have to take on in my 70s right and now you have more time yeah right to to learn about that and Mm -hmm. so I just was would mention that um, our guest episode number seven Dr. Carolyn Torkelson talks about integrative approaches to health and well-being so conventional medicine and and alternatives which is what you've been experiencing. Yeah, and it's, Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's really, really made a difference. It gives me a hope. So, you, so now you're looking ahead. Yeah. Not, not too hard, right? Yeah. yeah taking, it sounds like more like you're taking each day as it comes and, and um, doing some of the things that are of dear value to you. Is there anything else? that you haven't done that would be of interest to you? That I haven't done. Right. Apart from the climate change and, of course, your interest still in workforce development and, and that, What is there anything else? Dogs? Yeah. I Yeah, dogs really matter. <laughs> I mean, really, truly, they're a very central part of my they life, do, so yes, they're, they're really important. Um, but... I, you know, if I had if I had the opportunity, I I probably would like to work really much more closely with Giraffe Conservancy because I've been very interested in preserving giraffes as a species on the planet, and they're rapidly disappearing in the wild, like many other species. Mm-hmm. But I I have some particular affinity for giraffes. And I've given money for years to Giraffe Conservancy and share the care for giraffes at the Brookfield Zoo, et cetera, et cetera. But if, but I, you know, if I could do, if I could spend some time, additional time, it would probably be on that. I would probably work with Giraffe Conservancy. It's not what I expected you to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't know what you might say. You just totally surprised me. (laughs) I did? No. I mean, that's just something that's on my mind, you know. If you saw her office and her home, there's giraffes everywhere. All different sizes. It didn't surprise you at all. (laughs) (laughs) There's only 85,000 of them left in the wild on the whole planet. That's not very many. No, no. You know, and we're, we're losing them to habitat destruction and climate change and hunting. And I'd like to 
I'd like to contribute more to their their survival as a species. Yeah, we've we've done it with other species. Yeah, and we've put our minds to it. Yeah, right? so mm -hmm. no reason why we can't do it for giraffes. Yeah, they that would the world would be. It would be a loss not to have giraffes, or just to have them in zoos and nowhere else. No, we it would don't be horrible, that. right? Because right. I've been in sure. Africa and I've seen them yes. in the wild, yeah. and they're just they're just amazing. They are. <laughs> so I I would probably that would that's the only thing that came to mind when you asked me that. <laughs> well, you're very inspiring. That's for sure. <laughs> I would like to know more about. Because I know from your work days, 70, 80 hours a week, that was, that's true, that's what I know, with lots of travel. Um, what, is, what is fun like for you now? What is, what's fun? Um, I have a lot of fun uh, with being outdoors with my dogs, with friends. I love to watch movies. I, I love flowers and plants. I like mm -hmm. to see them, take care of them. I'm very interested in just the life of trees. Spend a lot of time looking at them and enjoying trees mm -hmm. everywhere. And I'm, so it's mostly quiet pleasures, you know, mm -hmm. reading, movies, friends, mm -hmm. walking. <laughs> you know nothing i mean nothing wild <laughs> nothing wild and crazy i guess i'd say we had a conversation with someone earlier today who talked about leisure and she said not the leisure where you're you know taking a vacation necessarily but but leisure as it feeds your being and your soul and it seems to me that's kind of what you're talking about uh-huh yeah yeah but and you know if I went on a vacation I'd probably do the same things I just said. Mm -hmm. Walk on the beach, look at the trees, look at the wild animals. <laughs> you know, talk, <laughs> walk, <laughs> look at the sunset, talk talk with friends. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be anything really, you know, adventuresome probably. Until you go to Africa or some other country that where you're involved in saving the giraffes yeah so it's almost like that kind of travel would be travel with a purpose right yeah not right just to go see the sites right it would be and and you know the african wildlife foundation i also belong to and i really have been very interested in the possibility of going to kenya to for them I mean, it's it's just been sitting there. I wrote an article for them for their newsletter, and I was just thinking about how they and the Giraffe Conservancy together are really working hard on on these issues of species extinction of the large mammals. Mm -hmm. And are elephants included? elephants are included, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm just saying, for me yeah. particularly, it's giraffes, sure. but elephants are. I also give money to the elephant sanctuary, <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really interested in elephants too. But giraffes are close yeah, to my yeah. soul, yes. you know. Maybe I was one in a prior existence. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? You know. But oh, anyway, those are the things that that I think are most important to me. <laughs> I can't imagine that you won't be doing 70, 80 hours worth of things again at some point. <laughs> she won't. She won't. 
not, I certainly don't want to travel as much. Okay. And I want to have more time for exercise than that I'm doing now, you know, which is a couple hours a day now. Yes. Oh, I really want to carve that out. It's important. Yes, for us, definitely. Yeah. You know, the older <laughs> oh, you are, yes. the more that you got to keep your strength up. That's right. So, well. So I don't know if that's... Wish you good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Very much. So we've been having a wonderful, inspiring conversation with Pam Tate, and we thank you so much for being with us today and being a guest on our podcast. It's great to be here. So, and we thank our listeners for joining us today. Our weekly Wednesday podcast is only as valuable as you, our listeners, find it, of course. So please share your thoughts, subscribe, rate, and review it when you listen, and, and we hope you add to the conversation that you provide feedback and become an active participant over time in our Facebook community, Women Over 70. We also hope you'll invite your younger friends, family, and colleagues to join in. Our goal is to create an intergenerational conversation, and if you know a woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us. And finally, we want to thank the School of Continuing and Professional Studies at DePaul University, where we recorded today's episode. See you on Facebook and next week on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.